and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you put your questions in the comments section, I may or may not see them and get them into my question queue, but if you send them to me by email, I definitely will. All right. I wanted to remind everybody that I have another YouTube channel. It is called Critical Clips. There is a link to it in the description section below here on my YouTube channel. Uh, videos, and uh, you can link to it, and I would like that you, of course, would subscribe to my second channel. The Critical Clips channel is uh, just clips and pieces, bits of uh, videos that I have done. I have uh, put up a bunch of them so far, and there are they go up five days a week, Monday through Friday. I First time ever, I missed this last Friday because of a bunch of different factors. But generally speaking, they go up Monday through Friday, and you can get a little dose of uh, awesomeness for, you know, it's usually about uh, somewhere between a four to eight minute video clip, uh, and I put them out each morning. So anyway, you can check out the Critical Clips channel using the link below. All right, guys, let's get on with your questions. We have some kind of interesting ones this week. Barney Saunders. Aside from David Miscavige, are there some Scientologists at the upper echelons of the Church of Scientology who are in on the con to some degree and even outright fake believers, or is it simply limited to Miscavige? It interested me that former senior figures Marty Rathbun and Mike Rinder practiced independent Scientology for many years after exiting the church, so they clearly did not view Scientology as an outright con. What do you think? Hey Barney, thanks for the question, and this is actually a really uh, good one because it speaks to the fact that uh, actually, as far as I am concerned, the upper echelon Scientologists, the guys who are in the hole, the guys at the upper ends of the Sea Org, are, are not in on the con. They are actually the most dedicated to the con. They're the ones who most believe it. Which is why when they come out, you see them practicing independent Scientology, and that's a, that's, there's, a, there's more than a couple people who do that. Or still think, even if they don't go get formal auditing or do formal Scientology out in what's called the field, out in the big wide world, they still might believe in certain principles or practices of Scientology because they have no idea what actually was being done to them, and so they've framed it a particular way, and that way is that it is helpful, useful, handled aberrations, they call them, problems, stresses, traumas, um, solved certain problems for them. I mean, those solutions that people experience when they go into these groups are not, to them, they're not fake experiences. Uh, now, it is true, though, and this is where the, the controversy sort of comes in with this, is that they're also not necessarily permanent gains. We have many, many, many instances and stories and examples of people going in, getting a Dianetics session, getting some Scientology auditing, experiencing true relief from physical symptoms uh, or psychological symptoms of, uh, you know, stress or physical pains, chronic pains, asthma, uh, allergies. You know, these kind of things get addressed with Scientology auditing and the person kind of pops out of it for however, for lack of a better phrasing here, they, the, the symptomology, the, you know, kind of goes away for a while. They chill. They, they feel better. They're in a, you could also call this a period of euphoria, a period of, of great release, a lot of neurotransmitters flying around in the, in the brain there, you know, get, creating all kinds of 
awe, euphoria, ecstatic feelings, fervor. And there, is, there are very, very few experiences that are more powerful to the human experience than euphoria or awe. These are experiences that convince people of things. They change people's minds in very significant ways. If you have an experience of awe or you go into a situation and you, you know, experience some kind of uh, euphoric feeling as a result of, of, of that experience and you assign the causation to that experience, then you are gonna, you're gonna be convinced that that could, you know, that that could solve cancer. You know what I mean? That that could be the, the solution to the world's problems is right there. People buy into this stuff all the time. And when you have people at the uh, upper echelons of Scientology, you're talking about people who have bought into this for years. Years and years. People don't make it to the upper echelons of the Sea Organization unless they've been around for a while. Uh, I, you know, we've talked a little bit in the past about the qualifications for people to even go to the international base or go up, be promoted to the highest or higher echelons of Scientology. And those requirements usually involve time as well. You have to have been in the Sea Org for at least a year before they'll even consider sending you to the international base. And in that year's time, you have to produce, have a production record. You have to have shown you're with the program and you can get things done. So, and believe me, not everybody in the first year of the Sea Org is, is in that state of mind. So, because it takes them a while to get used to the environment, how to, how to function in it. So, um, so the point is that the people who are at that level um, are the most dedicated, the most true believers, the, the, the hardest core of the hardcore, okay? That's how they get there and that's how they stay there. It's when they start showing signs of disaffection or disloyalty to Miscavige or to the cause or they're screwing up or they're not getting their stuff done that they get busted and they get sent de-promoted and they get sent off the int base and, and they have to sign, of course, um, before they even get up there, they're signing all kinds of non-disclosure agreements and they are reminded of that, told to keep their damn mouth shut. And, um, and of course, that usually is not even a matter of reminding them of the NDA so much as it is having them write all their overts and withholds and get sec-checked and be convinced that it was all their fault and everything that happened that, that was bad was on them. So that whole little operation goes on as well. So there's a lot of mechanisms in place. There's a lot of, um, of I guess I'll just call them brainwashing techniques. Uh, that are available to Miscavige at that level to keep people in line, to keep them believing, to keep them, to keep the pressure on them, and mostly to keep them in a place where they are so frantic and so concerned and so stressed that they can't even have the time to think about whether this is a good or a good, a, a good or bad experience, or whether Scientology is really good or bad. They're so that that's such a taken for granted thing that Scientology is the thing that's going to save the world. And they bought into that so hard to get to the int base or to get to the upper echelons in the first place that they just kind of take that belief for granted. They don't even have to think about it. They take it on faith, right? Remember, faith are those ideas that you don't have to think about. <laughs> that's, that's what that means. So that's how that works. And, um, uh, and that's why it takes a while, especially for the upper level guys, when they come out of Scientology to decompress and start reframing their experiences and, and, and recovering from the process and sort of recategorizing what happened to them. Um, that's why. So anyway, there's some thoughts on that. Hope you found that interesting and useful too as an answer to your question. Jim Gattel. Chris, are you familiar with the great man theory of history? Here is how it works. 
Some people say that if Hitler did not exist, someone else would have done the same thing, while others say nonsense. Without him, Germany would have had a leader who would not have invaded Poland or started a holocaust, but merely retaken some lost territory and then signed a new peace deal with England and France. Here is how it applies to cults. People say that if LRH never existed, those cybots would have fallen for the next con man or cult leader who came by because they are so stupid and mentally ill. It's obvious to me, as a viewer of your channel, that they are not stupid or mentally ill, and if they had joined naturopathy or vegetarianism instead of Scientology, things would have been different. What say you? Hey, thanks for the question, Jims. Good one. Um, I do not subscribe to the great man of history uh, or the great man theory of history. I've not heard of it until you mentioned it in this question. Funny, as I was literally putting the questions into the queue, I saw some someone else referred to the great man theory or something in some other context, uh, but I didn't even have time to look that up. But just based on what you've asked me in your question, I will say no. I don't. I don't believe that that is true. Um, it, because it's it smacks of fate or or kismet or something or or karma, and I don't think those things are real. the The universe is a random place. Things happen for completely inexplicable reasons that that have all kinds of consequences and ripple effects and things that cause us to do things and other people to do things. And there are thousands of factors at play in every single one of our decisions. Every one of them, thousands. And if you sat and listed them all out, you could figure it out and count them all out and work it up as to what all those factors are. We categorize them and simplify them in terms of genes, environment, education, culture, upbringing. You know, these are, these are ways we, we you know, sort of meta-categorize <laughs> all the things, that all these different factors. But if you really broke them all down, thousands, okay? Every decision, every second of every day, that's what's going on up here you are only aware of a couple of those factors that enter into what we call your consciousness, right, or your awareness. And this is all the subject of a lot of attention and a lot of science figuring out how all this works and what all the systems are and how the brain functions, but we know that these factors are real and that they exist. So to say that if you were to, re if you were to go back and, and on a timeline and remove one of those factors, like a whole person, L. Ron Hubbard, let's say, you, you pull him out of the mix. Okay, so there's no L. Ron Hubbard. So all the things in L. Ron Hubbard's life now did not happen the same way. All the people who knew him did now do not know him and operate, and, and their lives are completely changed. All the planes he flew, ships he captained, oceans he sailed on, Sea Org members he abused, Scientologists he conned, papers he wrote, lectures he gave, lecture halls that he rented, like all of that stuff goes away. And that radically changes, to one degree or another, all of history. I mean, if you think of the entire world, Scientology never happens in it. My whole life is completely different. Everybody's life who it touched is completely different. So when you look at the number of changes, the millions and millions of factors that you're affecting, when you take one person out of an equation, of, or a timeline, I should say, you know, to say, to assert with any degree of authority or certainty that someone else is going to fill that gap and it's going to be somebody of the same character and nature, 
come on, how do you how do you even begin to to assert something like that? It's an interesting theory. As far as I can tell, unless you can time travel, there's absolutely no way to prove it if, unless you can set up alternative timelines. But even in a theoretical sense, it seems to me that it falls apart right away if you look at the number of factors that actually influence why and how people act and behave the way they do. So that's why I say, nah, come on, that's, that's a gross oversimplification. And as you mentioned, Jim, in your question, it also rationalizes and it irrationalizes calling people stupid and mentally ill because they made a bad decision or a bad choice based on the best available information they had at the time. You know, this is where the the, the hindsight bias and the second guessing and the and the frankly the judgment right uh, of people who by other people right non cult members people who didn't experience what they what the cult members did. Um, you know, the judgments on these are just unbelievably harsh. And, uh, and way overblown. I mean, people who think that they are so smart and are never going to be conned and, can't, and advertisements don't work on me, propaganda doesn't work on me. Man, g- give me a break. You have no idea what you're talking about. People who say that stuff, I mean, let's just be blunt. They have no idea what they're talking about. The good news about that is that a little bit of education, just a little bit, and they change their tune right away. It's not hard to deal with this. I've been doing it for years. So, and that's really fortunate. I'm really happy about that. I've, I've changed a lot of people's minds on this particular point. So anyway, Jim, thanks for the question. And I hope that answer, uh, well, you asked what I thought. That's what I think. Michael Yoder. Hi, Chris. Just watched your live stream today. Great stuff. And I binge watch a lot of your previous Q&A vids and Sensibly Speaking podcasts. You talked about religion and atheism, and I was thinking, since Scientologists don't believe in nor worship a god, and only LRH as source, doesn't that make them atheists by default? Would love to hear your perspective on this. Okay, are Scientologists atheists? This is not the first time I've seen this question. And it's an interesting assumption, but um, one, um, Scientologists do not worship L. Ron Hubbard as source, as you mentioned in your question. Um, it's not a worship. It's a, uh, uh, you know, I mean, maybe for some people it falls into that, but that's not, that's not because LRH said worship him. That's not because anybody in Scientology thinks that's cool. Um, you know, nobody would say we worship L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology. They would say that we respect the man. We regard him, um, you know, you certainly raise him up on a dais as an authority figure and somebody to listen to and respect. And everything he says is so brilliant and so genius that, you know, you just can't help but just love the guy and want to be just like him. Uh, you know, there's all that. But, but it's not, that's not the same thing as worship, I don't think, right? It's a different kind of relationship. But anyway, that being clarified, um, some Scientologists, yes, some Scientologists are atheists. Uh, I'd say probably more than your average group. But you've also got a whole bunch of Scientologists who came into Scientology through Christianity, Judaism, even Islam, or other religions, uh, you know, Wicca. Um, I've met all people from all different roads, all different walks of life uh, when I was in there. And that meant that I met a lot of different people with a lot of different God beliefs. And we really, the thing about God beliefs in Scientology is it's not that people don't have God belief or a creator belief, it's that they just don't really talk about it much. You know, we didn't really sit around talking about the nature of God. Maybe in the 60s and 70s when people were having more conversations and, you know, in, in Scientology and were more into the, 
the new age woo of it all and everything, especially the way it was being positioned in the, 50, in the 60s and 70s as a new age spirituality kind of a group. Um, I think there were a lot more conversations about that kind of thing. But from my own experience, you know, some of the most interesting conversations I had about spirituality and Scientology and Thetans and, and the universe were with my high school friends outside of the church. Because <laughs> I used to try to sell them on Scientology and then they would kind of push back and then we'd have these conversations. And they were fascinating, hours and long conversations trying to convince people of the, the truth of Scientology. Um, but within the church, you're not doing that. You don't have to convince anybody of much of anything uh, outside of the classrooms. And even there, as I've gone over in detail, it's not a matter of convincing people. It's a matter of beating them over the head with a dictionary or encyclopedia until they finally relent and give in and say, L. Ron Hubbard, yes, okay, good. He, he's right. He's right, you know. So, um, okay, so that all being said, I, you know, there are atheists in Scientology, but being a Scientologist is not automatically an atheist position. There are, you know, you can believe in God, you can believe in a creator, you can believe in a, uh, a, an infinite being, the, the being of all beings, you know, the prime mover, unmoved, etc. Uh, Hubbard refers to these things. He degrades and derides organized religion all over the place. But as far as the concept of God itself, he very clearly does not say there is no God. He doesn't say that anywhere. He says that the Christian God and that Jesus are myths, specifically. And I believe he probably extended that to Muhammad too, but I'd have to, but don't quote me on that. I could be wrong on that one. As far as um, these constructs, these implants that were implanted, that were, you know, hypnotized into us, um, that's where Jesus, that's where Catholicism, that's where Christianity, that's where all that comes from. Um, and all the symbology, the angels and the devils and the good and the bad and the light and the dark, all of that, Hubbard said, was implanted in our brains actually during the whole Xenu thing. So that's where that supposedly all comes from. But the, but the reality of a creator or a god, Hubbard did not diss that, at least not that I remember. And I read a lot of his stuff and I listened to a lot of his lectures. So, um, so he definitely said the Christian God is a myth. He said people are sending their prayers up to a myth. Um, but then there were other places where he said that, you know, you will understand God. You will understand the creator figure when you get to the, you know, the, the, when you've, when he said, he's, for those of you who know Scientology terminology, he said, when you've cleared the first seven dynamics, then the eighth dynamic, the God dynamic of Scientology, will then become understandable to you. So that's, uh, that's about as much as that they get into that. John Patterson. I know there must be hundreds of answers to this, but how hard is it to reconnect to non-Scientologists after leaving the cult? Well, it totally depends, as you said in your question. Um, it's, it's totally context-specific to the relationship, how long you've been away, how hard it is to reconnect, what the, what the circumstances were of the original disconnection, right? Did you just fall out of communication with them? Or was it, you know, screw you, Scientology's the best thing ever, and I don't ever want to talk to you again, right? That, that'll be a hard one to reconnect with. Okay, so, um, so it depends on a lot of factors. But... Within my own experience and what I've seen from others, I would say it's not really that hard. And in fact, a lot of people are so happy when you reconnect with them after coming out. And they were like, oh God, I thought I lost you to that cult. Or, you know, you were gone for so long and they're so happy that you, you know, came to your senses or whatever. And, 
you know, don't particularly appreciate that kind of language, to be honest with you, from most people. Um, we don't like being told that, you know, thank God we finally realized how stupid we were being. Not helpful. Not a helpful statement. <laughs> Um, you know, oh, thank God, you finally, you know, woke up. You know, okay, uh, yeah, don't, don't particularly need to hear that. Um, so that can make it difficult. <laughs> but as far as, um, you know, as far as trust issues or as far as, you know, ability to reconnect, um, I haven't found it hard. I've reconnected with people I've known all the way back to high school, um, old people that I knew in Scientology back in the day who have left. After I left, I reconnected with some of them. So in many ways, it was just as easy as sending an email or making a phone call. Um, but in other ways, it's been really hard. And those ways are making close friends with people, following post-cult, post after, you know, after leaving the cult. It's not like, well, it's not like it's easy. And it's not like it's easy to trust people. It's not easy to extend... Um, yeah, trust, I guess. Um, and you have to reframe a lot of stuff. You got to start, you know, when you come, when you first come out of these, uh, of any of these groups, um, the adjustment period is just so damn difficult because it's hard to tell. Um, well, it's hard to tell who's your friend and who's your not and who's not when a whole bunch of people just disconnected from you or shunned you or told you how wrong and horrible and evil and awful you are. You know, you're not particularly keen on, on getting involved with people again right away, you know. And for some people, that extends for a really long time. And uh, for, a, you know, for a few, that means that those trust issues never get resolved. So that kind of sucks. But for me, um, it took years to get over the trust issues. I, I bring this up often because, it, for me, that was a big thing. Um, after I, after I felt like I had been betrayed so badly by Scientology, uh, I, th I think it's pretty understandable why I might feel a little bit skittish about going all in with somebody else or some other group, right? And that's why it took me years to form, you know, substantial, meaningful relationships, uh, romantically, you know, and now of course I've got my wonderful wife, Melissa, who I'm totally and madly deeply in love with, uh, but that took time. To form up. And I, you know, the other thing is that um, one of the habits that you form in a destructive cult, and I think this is fairly universal across the spectrum with cults, is fast friendships. You know, you're so, you feel so tied in with all the other people in your group because you have this really strong commitment and common ground based on those commitments that there is an almost automatic trust factor between the group members in a destructive cult. And of course, it also helps that they're small groups, even, even cells or, or little tiny groups. And, uh, and so it's easier to, to, to be closer in those kind of situations. But, um, but that, that extension of trust that happens inside the cult once you realize that that's all built on a on a bed of lies and mis and and misconceptions and and half truths and that kind of thing, then you know that there's all this uh, nonsense going on underneath that. Once the sort of trap doors open and you go ah, um, well, like I said, you're not not so quick to want to extend that trust again. 
and I think that's understandable. So that for me has been the major barrier that I'm that's coming to mind obviously right now as I'm answering this. There probably were other barriers that were that were difficult. Oh, communication. Um, you know, when I first got out of Scientology and for a very long time, I would overshare radically. And um, and I learned, I had to learn to kind of tone it down a little bit, right? Like in other words, when I first met somebody, I'd be telling them all kinds of stuff about myself that they weren't necessarily ready to hear yet, right? Because I was so used to being such an open book in Scientology that it was just a habit that when I meet people, I just start, you know, tell them everything. So, um, so I had to kind of unlearn that also um, and learn when to, you know, I had to learn a whole different set of social cues and mannerisms, right? Because people in a cult are very different from people outside a cult as far as how they carry themselves, how they, how they talk, how they interact with others, how they form relationships. I mean, you kind of get the idea. It's, there's a lot to it. But um, anyway, I hope that gives you some idea of what the difficulties are in adjusting when you leave. Matt Kordelski. From your point of view as an experienced YouTube content creator, do you think the new rules and alleged fines and deletions coming in January are going to send everyone's favorite free internet TV channel into the same garbage chute that MySpace went down? Or are we all just being paranoid and overreacting? Well, it's a little hard to say right now, given that YouTube... Um, okay, first off, the changes that are coming in January have to do with the... Um, with. COPA compliance, the Children's Online Protection Act, um, and enforcement of that, uh, and the government, the federal government is kind of coming down on YouTube pretty hard about that, and there's a whole effort made to get channels in compliance with that, and there are people who are freaking out because they post content that looks like it might be suitable for kids, but it's not. In other words, they might make animated content or content that somehow would, you know, is bright and colorful and might appeal to kids. Um, even though it's not meant for kids at all. And those channels might be targeted by the FTC as dangerous or problematic and get canceled or deleted. And there's a lot of concern about that right now. And unfortunately, what you find as a YouTube creator when you enter this world and start doing this work is that YouTube is, as a company, extremely bad at communicating with us. Their, their guidelines, their, their community standards are incredibly vague. Their, um, you know, the, the helpful videos that they make are not helpful for us. At least they haven't been for me uh, and other creators that I've interacted with. And I'm not saying they're not, you know, that, that, that nobody gets any, you know, help or, or assistance or anything from YouTube or, or they're not useful to anybody, but they certainly haven't been useful to me. And um, I'm not overly concerned at this point about having my channel gone after for that whole kid thing for the COPA compliance because I don't have any videos that look like they're made for kids and all my videos have been marked that way for quite some time. So, um, so I'm not concerned, but as far as the platform goes, I'm anticipating there's going to be a lot of fire and fury and, uh, you know, all kinds of nonsense coming uh, when these uh, regulations start going into place because we don't know, right? That's the problem with YouTube being so general and vague in their communications to us and with the FTC also having its whole bag of vagary and nonsense and what are they doing exactly and how are they going to go about this? You know, it's just a big mystery. There's, there's more question marks than there are answers. And so it, it's very frustrating for all of us. And this kind of thing is how you create unrest. 
So that's what we have right now. And that's this piled on top of the demonetization that has been going on with so many creators, including me. You know, the last two videos I posted, I'm not even bothering to query YouTube as to whether they can be monetized or not because I already know we're talking about child abuse, we're talking about cults, we're talking about, you know, um, a physical abuse, and YouTube just isn't into monetizing any of those, any of that content anymore. They're into cutting it off at the knees because their algorithms, and I, let's be clear about this, this is, this is mostly computers who are doing this, and it's because that's how they're programmed to work. And YouTube is doing, has way too few people to do the job that it claims it's doing. And it's using machines to make up for that, to deal with the hundreds of thousands, uh, perhaps millions of hours of video content that are uploaded to YouTube on a daily basis. They got to they got to process all that somehow, and so they're programming these algorithms to go through these videos and process them and look for keywords and problematic subjects and stuff like that and mark them accordingly. And here I am as a channel educating people about the dangers of these dangerous groups and talking about why they're so dangerous because I can't not do that and educate you guys at the same time, right? I have to talk in these terms. And so YouTube's computers are programmed to mark my content as just as damaging as the content I'm talking about, right? You get Nithi and Nanda and Scientology and, you know, all these other groups posting all this video content all over YouTube and we critique it. Well, you know, they uh, don't get monetized. They're not even trying to necessarily get monetized, but we are because this is how we're trying to make a living and we're critiquing that stuff and educating about it and YouTube thinks we're just as bad as that stuff is and so we don't get any um, monetary recompense for it and that's a, that's a problem. The, the, the bots and algorithms that YouTube has programmed just are you know, the AI just isn't there to be able to distinguish the same way a human can. And even then, even after you do get it, even if you do a human query, they still got these guidelines that are just total horseshit. So they flag my content as destructive and harmful and damaging and, and not to be looked at uh, in the same way, like I mentioned, that, they're, that they um, flag the actual cult stuff, right? Um, anyway, so it's frustrating. It's just frustrating, and that's the end of my rant about that. I have no idea what's going to go down in January, but I'm predicting that it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a bunch of sound and fury signifying nothing. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's going to be a lot of stressed out content creators and a lot of really pissed off people at YouTube and the FTC because they're going to be battling with us and we're going to be battling with them, and it's just going to be stupid. And it really is all coming from the fact that we're just not communicating well about what our different intentions are and the YouTube company is relying way too much on AI, which is a proto-technology that is clearly not fulfilling the promises that these programmers think it can fulfill. So that's where we're at. And um, that's the end of my rant. All right, guys. And now let's do some flash answers. Tyler Simmons. I am a hardcore gamer. I know that cults can be many things, but I have been wondering, are there video game cults out there? I have not 
directly heard about any group that is focused on or centered around a video game as the basis of a cult, but I will say that any group, any group of human beings can be turned into a destructive cult. So it's not, you know, so are there? Maybe. Um, are they getting any media? Are they getting any press? Is anybody talking about them? Not that I know of. Law of improbability. How does Scientology try to record evidence that the actions people take are voluntary other than the non-disparaging contract? Success stories, testimonials, right? Um, they have them sign those and attest that they are uh, achieving various states of existence and, and at every level that people attest to, there is an e-meter check and the person has to write the success story or the testimonial. So that is a really big one um, because it's the person's own words saying what wins and gains and greatness they got out of Scientology and stuff. And of course that can be used against a person later on. So that's the first thing that came to mind. Um, you know, sometimes they have success videos and stuff that they have people in. So obviously that kind of thing too. And of course you have a number of legal contracts that people are signing in Scientology for their services, the, the, there's the service agreement, the confidentiality agreement, the, you know, no, uh, I, I won't ever go to a psych hospital and if I do, you can come pull me out contract. And, you know, they got a whole t pile of these things. So all of those being signed by the person attesting that they're voluntarily signing these things, um, even though most people don't even read them or understand what they're reading any more than they understand the terms of service of Facebook. Um, you know, that's kind of how that goes. John Jones. If, as you believe, Miscavige no longer believes in Scientology, then what's stopping him from simply inventing new OT levels? Absolutely nothing. I have said many times, when the time comes and he feels the need to, he will sit down and write them or he'll have somebody else do it. That's not going to be a stop for David Miscavige to continue selling things to people. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. I really appreciate your viewership and your support. If you do enjoy my channel and you enjoy watching what I'm doing here, consider joining me on Patreon or sending me support and love through PayPal. Tis the season. I've also got Scientology A to Z New, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about for sale on Amazon. Link below. And, of course, you can find Critical Merchandise, also a great holiday gift. Link below. Okay, guys, I will see you next week. Thanks for coming around. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.